Alright, you primitive screwheads, listen up. Oh my god, I smell shenanigan! I have no idea what's going on, but I am excited! Yeah, baby, yeah! Ever dance with the devil in the pale Inconceivable! Cowabunga! I thought this was a party! It's two Moskis and a podcast. With Eric and Jeff. is a podcast what do you mean it's called two nerdskis in a podcast what do you mean they're talking about two nerdskis that come together and talk about everything that's pop culture and entertainment what do you mean by all of that well um lee j cobb it is exactly how you described um i'm eric i'm jeff and yes, this is two nerdskis in a podcast, and that was my impression of Lee J. Cobb, everybody. <laughs> um, so yes, this is another welcome, everybody, to another fine installment of the show. Uh, how are you doing, good sir? I know it's it's been a moment. Uh I'm I'm doing pretty damn good, man. Nothing, uh, no complaints. And yeah, I'm just looking to talk about a movie that. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, before I give my thoughts, what is your background with this movie? Okay, so today's movie, we are talking about 12 Angry Men. So this is, well, honestly, so we're going to look at the 1957 movie. But before that, there's a little bit of background on 12 Angry Men because there's quite a bit of, of background on this movie. So, okay, so just bear with me here. So this was originally developed by a man named Reginald Rose. He was like a television producer and writer and director as well back in the day. Um, like This was like 40s and 50s and 60s. He was a working man up until his death in 2002, I believe. Um, I, I believe he could have I mean, he could have retired before then, but he was a working man. Uh, worked on a lot of television, a lot of not a lot of movies, but yeah, it was just mostly television. Um known for a lot of popular projects back in the day. I see some of the stuff he worked on. So there was, um, he worked on, it was mostly plays he worked on, but um, obviously 12 Angry Men was one of them. He created a TV show called The Defenders, which was a weekly courtroom drama sp- spun off from one of uh, Rose's episodes for the TV show Studio One that he worked on. He apparently actually did an episode of The Twilight Zone um, I don't know if you've heard of this episode. Um, I know you're a big fan of the Twilight Zone, but the episode was called The Incredible World of Horace Ford. Um, it had Pat Hingold, Nan Martin, and Ruth White. Um, maybe you maybe you know that episode, but um, I've like I've never really I've only seen like one episode of the Twilight Zone, and that was with Buster Keaton, um, which was a callback to the silent films of the day. Um, but yeah, he worked on a whole bunch of projects. Um, and so 12 angry men, how that started out. Um, it's interesting. I was listening to an interview with his, um, wife, his widow. Um, I believe her name was Eleanor. I could be totally wrong on this, but so essentially what happened is he actually served on a jury. Um, and then what happened there, um, I guess the jury, I mean, I I think it was a murder trial, but, uh, according to his wife, he had been like, he was part of this jury and, 
everyone was just let's just say things got really heated up during the deliberation of of the verdict or whatnot and so reginald rose like he took inspiration from that and he created uh the sort the story and the concept for 12 angry men so originally it was a teleplay it was uh first developed in 1954 so it was actually broadcasted live on television back in the day um henry fonda uh one of the great actors of the time um still is to this day um may he rest in peace he came he i know he watched the he watched the teleplay and he this he talked to reginald rose and was like you know i want to make a movie um i think it'll be really great and so he and reginald both produced it um it was also written by reginald rose the screenplay and it was directed by sydney lumet who is another prominent like figure in film uh lots of great like movies but definitely um 12 Angry Men is by far one of his better known well ones. Um, so this was, so 12 Angry Men was the second like adaptation, um, at least the second most popular adaptation. Um, and that was released in 1957. And before I get to, and um, but before I get to the, before we get back, I want to at least cover one more adaptation that was made. That's well known. So it was exactly 50 years later or nearly 50 years later in 1997, uh, Showtime um, released a second uh, adaptation. Uh, this time, it had um, a female judge, and it had four black uh, jurors on there, or it could be it could have been three, but um, yeah, it was a little, uh, except for a little uh, modern uh, references and tweaks. Virtually, it's timeless. This story, um, the basic story of Twelve Angry Men is. There is a kid on trial for murdering his father. And so all the evidence has been presented. And so basically the entire play focuses on the jury. They've retired to the deliberation room. They're all kind of like wanting to vote this kid guilty because they're just like open and shut case. But there's one juror who votes not guilty. And because the vote has to be unanimous, it has to be either guilty or not guilty. Um, and so juror number eight, as he's known, he votes not guilty. And the entire duration of the story is about them trying to figure out um, whether or not he's guilty based upon the facts. And there are personal agendas and prejudices revealed, a lot of tensions built up, and it all takes place in like one after stormy afternoon. And that is basically the story of 12 Angry Men. So um, we, have a, we have a pretty good cast of characters, but um, Jeff... Overall, because this was your first time watching this. Yes, it um, was. Let me, I guess, I guess um, before I get go anywhere further, um, I guess maybe I should explain how I discovered this. <laughs> I've been rambling on for a little bit, but um, basically in eighth grade, it was my English class. We, uh, we decided, we, my, my teacher was deciding to uh, take a look at 12 Angry Men as I'm not exactly sure what the premise of why we were looking at 12 Angry Men, but I just remember really being really fascinated by the story. Um, I remember she actually made us sit in like, she took like a couple, she took like 12 of the class of the classmates, including myself. And we all sat in a row, kind of like how, or we sat around a table, much like how the jurors uh, are in the, in the play and in the movie. And the first, and, um, not everyone played the role, same role over and over, but I remember the first time 
I was juror number eight in, in when we were uh, reading the play out loud. So I was like, really, I actually was really kind of enticed with it too. I was really just trying to be like, uh, um, he's only 18 years old. What are you talking about? I think we should just talk about this, that sort of thing. So I was really engrossed with the character. And then after we did that, after understanding uh, or doing the assignments about it, we actually sat down and watched the 1957 film with Henry Fonda. So, um, yeah, so that's how I got into 12 Angry Men. And it's just really stuck with me ever since. I think it's a very powerful film in terms of its messages and its themes. But, uh, Jeff, I will finally turn it over to you. Um, like I said, this was your first time watching 12 Angry Men. So, Jeff... How do you feel overall about 12 Angry Men, at least the 1957 version? Sucked. I'm kidding. Ah, you son of a bitch. (laughs) It's a fucking masterpiece. So I've always been a quote-unquote movie guy, but I often tend to seek out some of the weird shit. When it comes to the quote-unquote essential classics there's a lot that i have not seen like i i haven't seen citizen kane all the way through i haven't seen godfather part two i haven't seen 2001 a space odyssey there's a lot of almost universally praised movies that i have just never gone around to and 12 angry men was one of them and i i knew the i knew the premise and everything and it, it always sounded interesting, but I just I just never got around to it. So this show uh, provided me the opportunity to finally see it. And pretty much from the very beginning, I was I was hooked. The moment you see that opening title sequence and how it just keeps going and going and going, it holds on that shot for. I, I wish I had a timer going uh, to to dictate uh, or to determine how long that. It's about uh, five minutes, I think. Is how long yeah, about, how so long about five minutes, an unbroken take, and the way that the the way the camera moves all around the all around the scenery, and how it just seamlessly uh, positions itself in for different camera setups it's almost like subconsciously you don't really know the camera is moving because it's just, it's done so organically. And I feel like part of that is uh, like, I, I can't help but feel the cinematography should uh, definitely inspired people like Spielberg in a way, because Spielberg is known for, for his, his long, his long takes. Mm-hmm. And with, um, and I feel this movie uses a lot of different long takes and being that this was a stage production first, I think that helps capture the, the feeling of a stage play even more where you're not, uh, I mean, there's obviously, you know, cuts all throughout the movie, but when they do utilize long takes, it's usually, it's usually on display to show, to just let the actors act and everyone in that room is unbelievably amazing they all it's god i don't even know i don't even know where to start it, well there's there's quite a lot to dissect about at least this version of the film um or this version of the story i mean this is by far the most popular version of 
the story that's presented. Um, I'm not saying that it's, I'm not saying it's the best one, but because I I mean, yes, it it is by far. Yes. But um, I recently, I recently watched the 1997 version, which is on, which is actually for free to watch on YouTube at the moment of this recording. And it's freaking really good. Um, It is. Oh yeah, it, it's brilliant. Um, I'll check. Yeah, there's it out. a lot more. There's a lot more. It's kind of shot in the way. Uh, I mean, it's a tele. It's a made-for-television movie, but the way it's shot, it feels like an episode of Law and Order where the camera's never on a tripod, except for maybe the courtroom scene where the ju- the judge is telling him, "Look, you have to v- find him guilty or not guilty. Um, I do not envy you your job or whatnot." Um, that's that's pretty like and the the way the camera's shaking uh, it's not it's not state uh, it's not let's put it this way it's not on a tripod and it adds to that extra amount of tension you know instead of just like zooming in or like showing how claustrophobic the room is but that too but um yeah i i didn't notice at first that it held that that opening um credits shot held on for 5 minutes until i watched chris stuckman's review i'm like fuck he's right and it really does stick that's yeah that's they, incredible. Uh, it it kind of uh, it gave me the same reaction when i when i first saw creed uh when it was uh uh adonis's first right yeah his first in the ring, in that and it's just that one long take and it take it took me a couple minutes into the scene to kind of determine that oh my god they've they haven't cut yet they're still going okay. and uh and I, I, we'll definitely get to uh get to create on the rocky movie someday but the uh uh but i mean that was a 2015 movie and this was made it, in 1957 yeah exactly and so the uh because i think uh i think film uh you know uh, the the actual film in inside of a camera I think they could only go for a few minutes before, uh, uh, but before it had to be cut is, am I correct on that? Um, I know it wasn't very long and I'm the one who went to film school, so I should know the technicals, but, um, but yeah, technically film stock wasn't that long. You had, I mean, like there is about like, you shoot like maybe 600 feet of film, um, or whatnot, maybe even less, um, and you have to remember it's celluloid. It's not like digital where you can just like erase the footage and do a retake. Um, you have to just go over and over. You have to really like nail the shot with uh, celluloid. Uh, otherwise it's just going to go to waste. Well, film, so, stock, well, film stock itself is, uh, is even today. It's pretty damn expensive. Oh, I and, mean, for fuck's sake, why do you think Nolan and Tarantino still use film stock to this day? It looks better. It, I mean, it, it yes, it does. does. It really does. That, the, uh, that does really speak to the quality of uh, film stock. But but I I can't even imagine the because uh, I because I don't think this was the it I think it was a it was a modest uh, modestly budget film. But it wasn't really yeah it wasn't a big budget film. It was so let's see so it was it, made for uh, I have the budget here. It was made for three hundred and thirty seven thousand dollars, and the box office was pretty impressive. It was two million at the box office, which not bad. If, you ju- if you adjust for today's inflation, pro- a crap ton of mo- a crap ton of money back then. Um, and I think, uh, I think it, I believe this was filmed in about three weeks. Uh, but I, I can't even imagine how 
how frustrating it could have been if if someone fucked up one of those long takes, especially if it was in the in the middle of the scene, because you would have to you, you got to start everything from scratch. I'm sure there's some sort of behind the scenes feature or uh, like documentary about the making of this film. I I, I wonder I, you probably have the same I probably have the same uh, curiosity as you in terms of how many takes did they do for that opening shot? Unless they rehearsed it over and over and over and over, I'm I'm sure they must have had and to. They, but... And then they rolled camera. Well, because I think um, I think a lot of these actors are uh, are uh, uh, theatrically trained, like like they have. Yeah, a... Most of these actors are um, probably yeah are theatrically trained. I mean, the way the way it's shot um, and the way it's structured, it feels like you're watching a play. To be honest, it really does. And again, it is a teleplay. The Reginald Rose wrote this for television, but it was a live play essentially when it was first premiered back in 1954. Well, so uh, when they did the film version, of course, you have more high caliber. There's more of a budget, and the actors had more time to rehearse. It's not like you could just like, um, I mean, because the teleplay, you had to, you had to like pretty much go for it, and if it didn't work the first time, and if it didn't go, just play off of it. Whereas like film, you have a little bit more time and you can just do a retake or whatnot. Well, plus a, a premise like this is is just designed to be a stage play. Oh, yeah. Um, there. I mean, I would love I haven't seen it on stage, but I would love to see it on stage. I, I, I that, that would be fantastic. Actually, I'll tell you this right now. This is a goal. This is actually a dream of mine. I've actually um, one of my um, goals in life is to direct a stage adaptation. Oh, hell yeah, man. Yeah. And <laughs> um, I don't know if I would cast myself as juror number eight, but I would like to be part of the main cast. Maybe I could play juror number one <laughs> or uh, juror number six or five. Because um, I don't know if I could... Re- um, I mean, I'm okay as an actor, but I don't know if I could memorize all those lines that uh, juror number eight has. I mean, uh, I have... Man, that- I feel like I'm, I'm personally the same as juror number eight, but like, I'd really need to work on my craft. I mean, it's cause there's, there's a lot of sequences where the dialogue is overlapping one another. And mm-hmm. a lot of the jurors have long monologues where they're, uh, where they're telling their, uh, where they're sharing their perspectives and their thoughts on, uh, on the case and everything. And there isn't a single dull moment. There isn't no. a single, dull performance or an awkward line reading or anything Mm -hmm. it's it just feels like every actor that was in uh in that room came uh they showed up on set and gave gave it their all well do you want to talk about the actors then because these yeah yeah definitely uh these guys are some of the i have the list of actors here and the character descriptions for each Juror, but yeah, uh, every one of these guys was a working actor, and also, I mean, the two most popular actors in this movie are Lee J. Cobb as juror three, and of course, Henry Fonda as juror number eight. But let's go over the rest of the cast here. So, one of them, um, I definitely want to, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, uh, but uh, one actor that I actually wanted to bring up is uh, Jack Clogman, and I, uh, yeah, and I, uh, I, I kind of focus on him specifically because 
Uh, he is actually in my favorite Twilight Zone episode. Oh, is he really? He is. And his performance in that episode is fucking amazing. It's, uh, I believe it's, I think it's a season f- either two or th- or. I want to say season three. I, I, I want to say season three. Uh, the episode is called A Game of Pool. And it's uh, it has a uh, Jonathan Winters in it as well. And it's just such a simple premise of, uh, of a man obsessed with the game of pool who wants to be the best, but he is... Uh, he keeps getting compared to a previous player, uh, played by Jonathan Winters, who... Uh, he's always living in his shadow, so he says, if I could give anything, I would just challenge him to one game of pool. And so Jonathan Winters comes, is summoned from the afterlife to play him, and the stakes are life and death. And throughout the throughout the episode, it, uh, it's as simple as it could get. It's just two guys playing a game of pool. But the way the dialogue is written, they're having all these philosophical discussions on what it means to live your life and how even if you are the best at something, you still have to make time to live. And Jack Klogman in, uh, in that episode is just given all this range of, uh, of emotion and acting in that episode and seeing what he was able to do with, uh, seeing what he was able to do with bouncing off all these other great actors was really fucking cool to see. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, obviously uh, Lee J Cobb and Harry Fonda, everyone in the cast did a phenomenal job, but let's go over the cast in this movie. Um, so let's start at the beginning. So you have Martin Balsam. He's playing the foreman or sure number one. So he's somewhat preoccupied with his duties, proves to be accommodating to others, an assistant high school football coach, and he tends to he tem, he tends to attempt to prevent heated arguments. He is the ninth to vote not guilty. Uh, juror number two is played by John Fielder, uh, or Fielder, uh, Field Fiedler. I think it, I think I finally got it. okay. So he's a businessman and a distraught father. Uh, no, no, no. Oh my god, <laughs> that's juror number three. Oh no, I got my characters mixed up. Ah! <laughs> but okay. Juror number two is a meek and unpretentious bank clerk who is at first domineered by others, but finds it finds his voice as the discussion goes on. He's the fifth to vote not guilty. You have Lee J. Cobb, as we mentioned. That's right. That Lee J. Cobb as uh, juror number three. He is a businessman and distraught father, opinionated and stubborn with a temper. He is the main antagonist. He is the last man to vote not guilty. Um, you have E.G. Marshall as number four. He is a rational stockbroker, unflappable, calm, and analytical. I like to think of him as the Vulcan of 12 Angry Men. Because <laughs> he's just, because the way he speaks and whatnot, he's like, you are fucking Vulcan, okay? Shut up. <laughs> he remains among the most neutral of the jurors, examining the case through facts and not bias. Again, like a fucking Vulcan. He is the 11th to vote not guilty. You have uh, juror number five, as Jeff points out, was played by Jack Klugman. He is a soft-spoken paramedic from a violent slum, traditionally the youngest juror. In the Broadway play and in 1957 film, a Milwaukee Brewers fan. In the 1957 film, a Baltimore Orioles fan. He's the third to vote not guilty. 
I think I mixed up uh, 1997 and 1957. But um, So you have juror number six, who's played by Edward Binns. He's a house painter, tough, but principled and respectful. He is the sixth to vote not guilty. Coincidentally, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a nice coincidence. He's the sixth jury, and he is the sixth to vote not guilty. Interesting. So you have Jack Warden, who plays juror number seven. He's a wise cracking salesman, sports fan, seemingly indifferent to the deliberations. He is the seventh, coincidentally, also. He will always he will always be the grandpa from Problem Child to me. Problem Child? I don't know if I've seen that one, to be honest. It's amazing. (laughs) Of course, we have Henry Fonda as the main protagonist, juror number eight. He is the first dissenter. And he is identified as Davis at the end. This is only in uh, the film versions, I, as far as I know. So in 1957 and in 1997. Also uh, is Joseph Sweeney playing um, juror number nine. He's also only the only one identified. He is a wise and observant elderly man. He is the second to vote not guilty. So coincidentally, Joseph Sweeney, he is the only cast member from the original 1954 teleplay to be reprising his role in this film, uh, which I thought was fascinating. Um, You have number 10 played by Ed Begley. He is a garage owner, a pushy and loud mouth bigot. So he is probably the most racist of this group. Um, In the 1997 film, he is apparently a former uh, uh, member of the nation of Islam, which I found very fascinating. Um, He is the 10th to vote not guilty. And then you have uh, George Voskovec. He is, oh, he is also from the original uh, 1954 play. I found that's interesting. Uh, He is a thoughtful immigrant watchmaker and naturalized American citizen who demonstrates strong patriotic pride. He is the fourth to vote not guilty. Um, Jeff, I just want to point out right now. um, Well, I'll get back to that. So then we have Robert Weber, who is one of my favorite jurors because he's just like, eh, He's kind of not really into it. He is an indecisive advertising executive who is easily swayed by the others. He's originally the eighth to vote not guilty before changing back and forth three times. Um, And that is the cast for the 1957 version. And we can talk about the 1997 uh, version if you want. I I know you haven't seen it, but I can at least maybe give you some like differences that are shown in that movie. But yeah, we have an all-star cast of like working actors and at least two big names. I mean, uh, the only movie I saw Lee J. Cobb outside of was The Exorcist. He's the detective who investigates. That's um, right. He was in The Reagan. Exorcist. Yeah, he, he investigates uh, Reagan's uh, 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 possession or whatnot. And um, yeah, it's a very, this is a very tense story. And you have a really great cast of characters. Um it's it's uh it's incredible to say the least but um so do you do you want to kind of get into the facts of the play itself like the foot i mean the evidence of what make about the case or whatnot because it's it's pretty clear that um there is reasonable doubt but it's also pretty clear that it's possible the kid actually did do it um i don't know where you were, what you think, but I'm well, yeah. So, what I what I like is how, uh, is you're gradually given more information as the movie progresses. And so, when you hear, when you hear just by like a, a step by step, uh, summary of a of, of the murder, uh, you kind of, 
you kind of assume, yeah, that that sounds pretty, um, uh, pretty opening, open and shut. But the more they actually dive into the discussion, and the more they actually peel back the layers and actually analyze every single minute detail of events, and the way, um, I don't know, just just the way that they, uh, uh, the way Henry Fonda is uh, is saying that uh, this man's life his his fate is in our hands mm-hmm. and we can't we should at least talk about it and and then you you hear uh, i think it's a uh, jack warden's character says that he he has tickets to a ball game later that night mm-hmm. and, and just wants to get the fuck out of there yeah you know? exactly like none of these guys expect their expect to be there very long and at first their uh, some of their patience is really tested and the fact that the room is is very heated, and uh, like I, I don't think they know their uh, uh, to their knowledge they don't have a working fan until much later. Mm-hmm. And, and, then and then at that time, that's when a thunderstorm hits, and that's when you know the tensions are really starting to build up. Exactly, it's the longer they're they're in that room, it's you know because obviously they they can't leave until they until they have a verdict, and so they could either. Uh, they can either be open to more evidence and more perspectives. And, and what I do like is how, uh, is how it takes, uh, takes these random men and obviously none of them know each other. And so whenever they try to bring their personal life perspectives into, into the case, it's a really good way to kind of describe, uh, who they are as characters. Uh, and and uh, the moment that really stuck out to me is I, I forget which uh, which juror it was, uh, but when they're when they're bringing up the the glasses, yeah. So it's yeah, juror that four, that it's juror number nine who brings up the glasses, and then um, juror four is that's what ultimately gets juror four to be like, huh? I didn't think about that before. Fascinating. Exactly. And oh man, it's. There is some it I mean again everyone is every single one of these actors are, are are at the top of their game here and the acting and the writing is just top notch. Um oh yeah. It, it, it's quite brilliant to say the least. I here, you know one of the greatest moments though um in the movie is um when they're talking about the knife, right? And yes. They're really trying to and they're like there's no you there like there's only one of they're saying that this knife is only one of its kind and then Juror number eight just calmly reaches into his pocket, pulls out an exact same similar knife, sticks it into the table and like, where did you get that knife? And they're like, he's like, well, I was out walking in the boy's neighborhood last night. I found this at a local pawn shop. Cost me six bucks. And that's another perfect example of reasonable doubt because it was believed that that knife was only one of a kind. And it's proven by him buying, showing that knife that, it's very possible someone else could have committed the murder. You know, that's, that's like brilliant um, changing of twist, I guess. Well, in the, in the way that all these, uh, all these events transpire as, uh, as, as the movie progresses, you kind of find yourself almost as an outside listener to the jury where it's, you, 
you're almost kind of conflicted yourself and Mm -hmm. you're, you're listening to all these different perspectives and even, uh, cause there's a, uh, there's that scene in the, in the bathroom, uh, with, uh, I believe it's, it's uh, juror number six. And well, yes, as a conversation and, uh, with juror seven and then juror six comes in and he's yeah, like, and, you know, and he, and he says, uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but, uh, uh, but I think he said, well, what if you convince us that, uh, that he didn't do it. And then we just let, uh, let a kid who stabbed his father get, get away with it. Yeah. Um, I believe that. And it's like, <laughs> sorry, damn, that's quite a bit. So uh, that's, 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 kid that's, did it. that's a good point. Out of it. Yeah. It's, it's, so a, it's, it's a, a very uh, possibility too. I mean, it really kind of does. It really doesn't really kind of matter in the end if the kid did or not. The point is, is, um, everyone wants to just vote him not guilty, but juror eight is just like, you can't just jump to conclusions. You have to at least talk this out. At least give me a good reason why you want to vote him not guilty. I mean, vote him guilty or whatnot. Um, and then if you have reasonable doubt, vote him not guilty. Don't just say he's guilty. Like at least give me a good reason as to why you want to vote that way. Um, and that's a good argument in that case. And you I, want to I do like- present your, uh, argument before you, you know, pass down judgment or whatnot. And I do like, uh, with, uh, with the kid that's actually on trial, how there's just one single shot of him in the very beginning. And he just has this, this look on his face and you almost, he doesn't have any lines, but you feel sorry for him. Yeah. at, At face value, it could be a look of either, uh, panic Mm-hmm. Or it could be a look of uh, regret, because if, it's ambiguous. I would agree, and and I think, um, but but just the way the camera just kind of lingers on on his eyes, like I, I don't even think he, I don't even think he he blinks in in the scene. Uh, it you're just able to create uh, an instant connection right there to someone that doesn't have any lines is never seen again, but mm-hmm. is the central focus of this entire story. And, and I don't know, it's when you're able to create a character presence like that off one single shot, uh, that, that that's just great filmmaking right there. Oh no, I agree. Cause then, cause like, again, this whole story is about whether, I mean, his whole life is in the balance or like is in the hands of these guys, of these jurors. Strangers. Yeah, complete strangers. And um, it's going to take one long conversation to figure out whether or not he's guilty. Um, and it's not an easy it's not an easy task. I mean, ultimately, of course, he's found not guilty. But there is that possibility that um, he actually did kill his father. It's like juror number six said, suppose you uh, talk us out of this. The kid actually did do it. Uh, yeah, it really, it, and... it really does bring home the fact. Uh, the, it's like one of the biggest. I guess you could say it's a plot hole or just a giant um, flub. I mean, I, that, but I mean, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it a plot hole. I, I would just say it's. Uh, I would say kind of like kind of like what you were just saying. How it doesn't really matter whether or not he did it or not. I think the. I think w- what's important is the actual conversation that happened between these 12 men, mm-hmm. how you uh, just how these, and I, I do love at the very end that 
I think it's uh, uh, I forget what sure it was, but he he goes up to Henry Fonda and says like, "Hey, my name is so and so." And number nine, at yeah, the end there. yeah, because they're not named throughout the entire play or no, the entire not story. at all. Only in the so it's only in the film version. So the nineteen fifty seven and the nineteen ninety seven movie. So juror number nine goes up to him and is like, "What's your name there, Davis? My name's McArdle." Well, so long, so long. Um, and like everyone goes their separate ways, and the film always ends the same with juror three just kind of like defeated there, and just he's just so battered by the the events of the conversation but i guess let's really get into these characters so um every single except for a few of the characters only about maybe i'd say like at least two characters have like agendas and um have either agendas and or some real biases or prejudices and so so it's established early early on that juror number three Oh, I guess let's let's come back to him. Juror number 12. No, no, not juror. Jury 10. Juror 10. Juror 10 is a bigot. He is like, they, they, they this, they that. He's very much um, trying to like, because the kid in the story, it, it sounds like he's Puerto Rican or uh, according to the plot synopsis that I've read, some mm-hmm. sort of like, or at least some sort of uh, Latino um demographic or whatnot um or ethnicity and so he's just like they're coming in in the slums and they're invading our space and whatnot we gotta get them before they get us and it, it overall it, like he is the most i hate him more than i hate juror. oh yeah three. no like at like least juror number three at least juror number three has a legit reason this guy just spews hate because he's, he's just an asshole hate. yeah he's just a complete asshole and i and i love that when his motive is fully exposed and he just keeps, he keeps trying to keep trying to, to justify himself mm-hmm. and everyone just turns their fucking back on him. Well, the first one to really turn his back on him and he's really the third one to vote not guilty. And it's, it's uh, Jack Klugman's character, juror five. He's just like, he's from the slums. He's like, Hey, I grew up in the slums. All right. I think I turned out. Okay. So how do you, how the hell do you justify that I that everyone from the slums is like that, you know, because it's like you said, he he knows what it's like to live in a slum, but he didn't. But, you know, it looked like he turned out pretty all right. I mean, and then he also gives some pretty good insight to like knife fighting in the slums or whatnot. Um, at one point where they're trying to figure out how the wounds were attributed or whatnot. He's like, no, yeah. you don't you don't stab down. You underhand it. You stab underhand because that's how the knife is designed. Well, plus, um, I, plus I, I think that ties back to just uh, just how, you know, that, you know, the, the way the, the, the system works, you know, the uh, the jury is compiled of people that that are just chosen at random. And so whenever you have that, you know, everyone has their uh, their own story, their own background, their own uh, their own upbringing. Mm-hmm. And the way um, and the discussions they have throughout throughout the film, they're all kind of forced in a way to justify their decisions by bringing up their life experiences. Um, and you're just able to get a really good understanding for who these people are. Like it's 
like again, it's it, it's in all in one location, and the movie is able to pretty much uh, pretty much all around create engaging three dimensional characters and some uh, some you really root for, some make your skin crawl, but mm-hmm. you have an emotional connection, both positive and negative to everyone in that room and just watching them clash uh, ideologically is just, it's one of the most fascinating things I've, I've ever seen. And God, I feel like a dipshit for taking this long to actually see it. Well, no, I mean like it's, it's one of those movies that definitely uh, like resonates with people on certain things. I mean, you, you, you brought up like characters who, have good representations. You let's go to juror number eleven. So this is the one who's from Eastern Europe. He's the watchmaker of everyone in this juror pool. He is probably the most patriotic of the group, even though he wasn't born from in America, but he was naturalized. So I love how like juror number ten is like he don't even speak good English. Correction, he doesn't even speak good English. <laughs> I like that line a lot. Um, and then, and then he's the one who makes the impassioned speech about, we have been given a great task to come here to deal with a man's life that we've never even met before. Boy. And he's, he gives some legit good arguments. You know, he's, yeah, he's absolutely. Um, I mean, you want to go to, you want to go to someone who is respectful, go to juror six. Uh, he's all about, he's, he's a house painter. He's just, he's just, he threatens to knock uh, juror number three out on his ass if he doesn't cut, stop shutting up to juror number nine. Juror number nine, I feel like, is pretty tragic because of the way he talks about the old man's testimony and the way he talks about the old man. Um, they There's a line cut out, or there's a part of that uh, monologue that's cut out, but because um, in the original play he mentions, I am that man. Cause it's, so it sounds like... Um, much so he identifies a lot with the older man because at one point he probably went through a very similar predicament and juror number four goes i think i understand now thank you for telling us this um and it's it, it it's just a lot of these characters are just very they give they're not not all of them are fully developed some more than others but they all are very engaging like you said i mean you want to talk about an engaging character. Let's go to juror seven. Who's just like, I want to get the hell out. I just want to watch the game. And like, he votes not guilty just for, just so he could like get out of there faster. And juror 11's like, that's no way to change your vote. You need to give me a legit reason why you voted not guilty. You can't just say you want to vote. You want to vote not guilty just because you have some tickets burning a hole in your pocket. You either say guilty or not guilty. What is your decision? And, um, I kind of don't like the delivery. He says it. Um, um, what's his name? Uh, Jack Warden says it. But I do like the way uh, Tony Danza, who plays Juror 7 in the 1997, says it. He's like, I don't think he's guilty. It's really powerful. Oh, yeah. By the way, Tony Danza is in the 1997 movie, as is uh, um, a whole bunch of other characters. We can get into them later. But um, let's talk about Juror 8. Um, because I think he's fascinating. While he votes not guilty, here's what I like about him. 
he's not voting not guilty because he, he doesn't think the kid's not guilty. He's voting because he's not sure. He's really not positive that the kid is guilty or not, or, or not guilty. He just simply wants to, he's like, it's not easy. It's just not easy for him to send someone straight to the electric chair just because like for him, he's, he's a, he's more of a reasonable man. He wants to at least discuss it, you know? And again, it, the fact that he uh, is not entirely sure that this kid is guilty says a lot um, because he's just not sure, but he at least again, wants to at least have a conversation about it because for him, it's not it, like, again, it's not easy to send someone off to die. It's like, it's like he's the first to kind of realize how serious of a decision he has to make. And he doesn't, he doesn't feel right pursuing it unless, unless he is 100% convinced. And he's also all, really good at, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say like, all he wants to do is just have a conversation with everyone and have every minute detail laid out just so they are absolutely convinced. And he said, you know, just let's, if you, if we just have this discussion, then I will, uh, I'll change my vote if, if things don't, don't shift, but just as it, as it goes on and everyone's just more gradually persuaded to vote, not guilty, it's, it's done so organically and mm-hmm. and just the way um you know just just as as a viewer you're uh, you're always glued to the screen because the more uh, the more people switch it just kind of makes you uh makes you think like what is the outcome going to be uh because i i actually i didn't know i didn't know what mm-hmm. the outcome would be but i really wanted to know and, and i'm glad that i I'm glad that I didn't know the ending because I think that helped enhance my experience with, with this movie. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, I, I quickly want to mention the, uh, the monologue that uh, Lee J Cobb has, has at the end where he, uh, Oh God, it, it's well hard. before you get there, there is a moment that I want to point out. That's like one of the best, interactions between juror eight and juror three and that's i can't i can't put it to words but i at least i at least would like to play the audio of this so just bear with us here um here you go brother i've seen all kinds of dishonesty in my day but this little display takes the cake Y'all come in here with your hearts bleeding all over the floor about slum kids and injustice. You listen to some fairy tales, suddenly you start getting through to some of these old ladies. Well, you're not getting through to me. I've had enough. What's the matter with you guys? You all know he's guilty. He's got to burn. You're letting him slip through our fingers. Slip through our fingers? Are you his executioner? I'm one of them. Perhaps you'd like to pull the switch. For this kid, you better would. I feel sorry for you. What it must feel like to want to pull the switch. Ever since you walked into this room, you've been acting like a self-appointed public avenger. You want to see this boy die because you personally want it, not because of the facts. You're a sadist. You don't really mean you'll kill me, do you? 
it, that's that, for me is like one of the most powerful moments in the entire movie um, where he's basically the, he points out just how much this juror three has stake for in this and how he just seriously just wants the kid to die. And it's pretty established early on that um, that he's very much voting guilty because you learn that he's got a son that he doesn't really talk to anymore. He hasn't spoke to him for about two years. And so you realize he's using this as a somewhat of a way to get back at his son, even though he's not, even though the defendant is not his son. Um, it's, it, it shows a lot um, and it's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's basically using this, this kid that he doesn't know as, as like, an avatar for his son to project his, Mm -hmm. his anger towards. And the way that he, the way that he delivers that, that monologue and just looks at the picture of him and his son and just tears it up and collapses to, to the ground and just, just comes out and says, not guilty. It's very powerful. I really enjoy that scene a lot. So fucking powerful. His incredible. That that is that is some of the finest acting I think I've ever seen. And and I think um, you know one of the things that I I can't stand hearing from people is when they said that they will not that they don't want to watch a black and white movie just because it's in black and white, which is ridiculous in my it, opinion, because it that's really, it that does. It, it, I mean, just because it's in black and white doesn't mean it's not engaging. I mean, look, I've seen citizen Kane. Um, it's in black and white. And I think I, I understand why it's considered at least one of the greatest films ever made because on a technical aspect alone, it's incredible. The narrative is, pr- I like the way they tell the narrative and it's, and, and it's impeccable. Okay, impeccable. I guess yeah, you can use that word. It's it's just brilliant in the way it tells its story. Um, even though Jeff is only hasn't gone all the way through it, but that's an that that's for another discussion. But um, <laughs> sorry to call you out on there. But um, yeah, because I, cause I'm I'm actually kind of grateful that I I was raised on on a on some black and white movies because I think that that helped me appreciate that era of cinema a lot more well didn't uh, you grow up watching a lot of the universal monster movies and that's why you like a lot of black and white movies because most of those movies were black and white to begin with they were yeah i think i think only the phantom of the opera from 1943 was was in color um but i mean one of the movies that uh that just engaged me uh from the first time i saw it and still does to this day is is King Kong. And uh, I definitely want to talk about the original King Kong someday, but uh, you know, just at, at the time I was like just a, a six year old kid who could have, uh, could have just been watching SpongeBob reruns. <laughs> uh, let, let, let's be real. I'm, I'm almost 26 and I'm still doing that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey man, it's okay, man. I, I, I I will occasionally fuck around with SpongeBob here and there, to be honest. If and if you don't, you're lying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, but no, I mean, but no. It, it, you're, the point is, is that like you sh- don't watch a movie just because it's black and white. The reason it's black and white is probably because it was cheaper to shoot in black and white. 
because color at that time was so expensive. I mean, Technicolor like that, you couldn't afford Technicolor like that back in the day. That was like a special thing. I mean, when Wizard of Oz was shot on color, that was because they were trying to transition from the real black and white world to a more colorful world of Oz. That's why it's shot in color. Um, and then you get to, but so something like 12 Angry Men, yes, it's shot, it's shot in black and white, but that doesn't matter. What matters is just how engaging the story is and how it's technically presented and whatnot. Like to hear someone say that they don't watch movies because it's shot in black and white. I'm like, you clearly don't get movies then. Uh, or you, well, that, well, that, I don't, that, that, I don't, that, I don't, that, seem, I don't mean to sound pretentious, but I'm just like, I just get really frustrated when people refuse to watch black and white movies. Well, yeah, plus that, that makes me wonder, like, would you not even, uh, to anyone who would say that, like, I would just ask, like, would you not even watch a movie like Ed Wood? That, yeah. And that movie was made in like, what, 93 or at least in the it, 90s. Uh, right? It came out in 94 and it was shot in black and white because that's what Tim Burton wanted to do. And it was a stylistic choice, correct? Yeah, it, it was a better yeah. movie for it. And and so I don't know, like it, it just sounds whenever someone tries to tries to throw that criticism towards film, it just sounds like it just sounds like a biased excuse to not watch something that's more current. And and like especially when I hear people who will uh, especially with horror movies, it, this is a big one with me when even if it's in color, when people don't want to watch the original, they just want to see the remake. Like I, I, I knew someone who refused to watch the uh, the original Nightmare on Elm Street and only wanted to watch the remake. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know why that made me laugh, but I'm just laughing. At, I guess I'm less laughing at the absurdity because obviously the remake is I've seen a bit of the remake um, and it made me want to watch the original and I still have not even seen the original, but I already know that the original by Wes Craven is still better than the well, remake. I'm uh, yeah, not to, not to get too off topic, but I, I was like, Oh, how old was I? God, I was like, I was like 15 when, uh, or 14 or 15 when the Elm street remake came out. So I would just see, anything and say oh that was dope that was such a good movie like th that was me coming out of transformers <laughs> and i'll forever regret that, <laughs> I'll forever regret that sentiment. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> nice, dude. Nice. even uh, even with the elm street remake i i walked out of it and i was just like that was not good <laughs> i mean to be fair when i when i first saw amazing spider-man 2 i kept telling how it was much better and you were very much like, dude, what the fuck are you smoking? And I'm, I mean, when I look back at it now, I mean, I still like it, but I at least now have some good criticisms towards that movie. I know I'm in the minority there, but then again, me and Jeff are the people who are in the minority of liking Spider-Man three, but at least we acknowledge the faults in that movie too. To anyone who says Spider-Man three is not a masterpiece. I'm just, I just have to say, I'm going to rub some dirt in your eye. <laughs> But yeah, no, but in all seriousness, um, I mean, 12 Angry Men, yes, it was shot in black and white. So what? It, it's not, that doesn't change the fact that it's an excellent movie. It, it's, it just happens to be shot in black and white because that's probably cheaper. But just, just because it's filmed in black and white, I don't think that detracts from the fact that 
this movie is timeless. Oh no, exactly. No, what I love about what I love about this story is that you can tweak a few things here and there. Cause so when I watched the 1997 TV movie, um, they only changed like a few things they changed. Well, so you can't smoke in a jury room anymore. So they did change that. Some of the juror members, at least three of them are black. Juror number 10, which actually, which actually makes me want, uh, um, which actually makes me want to watch uh, the 1997 version. Cause that, that does sound like a, like an Here's a fun fact. So juror number 10, juror number 10, I mentioned earlier, he was a former nation of Islam. He's, He's, so he's a black he's a black man. So it's very interesting to see that kind of flipped because he obviously juror ten in the in nineteen fifty seven played by a white man, and then you have a black man being prejudiced, which let's be honest, not very far off from what we're seeing today. To be honest, I'm look, I'm not trying to go political here, but I'm just stating the obvious because it's in this day of age, um, at the time of this, it's very much apparent that like anyone is prejudiced it doesn't matter what your skin color is doesn't yeah. matter what yeah. your doesn't matter what your religious background is there is always some sort of prejudice coming out of anyone all i will say is that it applies to all exactly no and no exception I agree with it, it, it applies to all i think yeah this movie is very relevant today um and i Absolutely. think the story is very relevant today because again, it, because the themes presented here are very timeless. Themes of prejudice, one against many, reasonable doubt, um, accountability, all that. Everything presented here, you could easily put this, you could have easily made this in 2021 and it would still be, still have the same effect, I feel like. Although, I agree. knowing today, maybe it would be called 12 Anger Jurors because they would want to put some women in there. But honestly, I'd actually be okay with that because I kind of wonder... Because I know there are some stage productions that have been called 12 Angry Jurors or 12 Angry Men and Women. And some of the jurors have been changed to women. But honestly, it doesn't really matter as long as the characters still relatively stay the same. Yeah, like as long as it, yeah, like as long as it stays true to uh, to the themes of the story mm-hmm. itself, then then yeah. Like if you're gonna make a new adaptation, then then yeah, like get some uh like get some different voices in there to offer uh, to offer more diverse perspectives. Cause that, personally for me, yeah, no, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but Oh yeah. Like I, I was just going to say, uh, cause if, uh, if you're going to do a remake, a new adaptation, then something like some, a simple change like that can, uh, can definitely make all, all the, all the difference, which is why I'm, I'm really interested to watch the 1997 version. And it's free to watch on YouTube at the moment of this recording or uh, at the time, at the time of this. So uh, if you get a chance, definitely check it out on YouTube. But um, I would like to say in terms of a remake, I've always, I don't know why, but I've always envisioned juror number three to still be a white man. Or I could probably make juror 10, at least an old white man just to resemble today. And then for whatever reason, I think, for me, I've always envisioned a modern day juror number eight to be a young black woman for whatever reason. I don't know why, but I've always just envisioned that just to, just to reflect the times have changed um, because in the new version. So let's kind of go over kind of the cast of 12 Angry Men for 1997. So you have for juror number one, it's Courtney B. Vance. Um, you have Ossie Davis playing juror number two. From um, Bubba Hotep. Yep. 
And then you have um, Doctor. You have uh, George C. Scott um, from Doctor Strangelove playing up juror number three. You have Armin Mueller Stahl playing juror number four. He's a German actor, so I thought it was interesting that a German was playing juror number four. <laughs> just, I just did. I don't know why, but you have Dorian Harewood playing juror number five. The late and great James Gandolfini was number six. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Tony Danza was number seven. Uh, the late Jack Lemon was number eight. Hume Cronion was juror number nine. Uh, McKit. Uh, Mikilty Williamson, I, I I feel like I'm mispronouncing his name. He was he was juror number ten. Edward James almost was juror number eleven, and then number twelve was played by William Peterson from CSI fame. So you have a pretty good cast of characters in juror in the 1997 version. Um, and again, you could totally flip the genders and the ethnicities as long as the characters still remain true to each other and the themes still stay the same. I'm like, I totally would like be down to like see this. And honestly, if I ever do my play or make a movie out of this, like I would, I would just tweak just a few things, but the story would still be the same. I don't know if people would watch it. Hopefully people would, but um, the story is so timeless enough with its themes and values that you could totally do a remake. Although I, there is one, this is going to be very controversial of me, but like, I imagine whoever does tries to do a remake will try and like take the story outside of the juror room and try and do like, you know how they just, you know, do you remember how, when they describe like the old man saw this or the old woman heard this, they would like cut to like flat theoretical flashbacks, if you will. So, you know, finally have a woman, you finally have those scenes played out, but I'm like, I'm, I think that shouldn't happen because the whole point of 12 no, Angry Men is that it's confined to that room and all these people and you have the jurors debating this. So well, yeah, well, because being locked in that room is what creates the sense of claustrophobia and tension mm-hmm. between uh, between all the characters. And if you if you take one scene out of that, uh, like out of that room, it it kind of deflates the whole thing. And and so that, that's kind of why, you know, that. Uh, that last scene of the movie where they're all leaving, leaving the courthouse, it feels like a, a both the like has been relieved. It feels like a metaphorical and literal mm-hmm. breath of fresh air, just because you're finally out of that fucking room. Yep. Yeah. No. So th- it's just I I think that the story is the story is really says a lot about the state of humanity or whatnot. And um, it, it's it's something that definitely resonates still today. But in terms of today's subject, the 1957 movie, it is, in my opinion, it is just a timeless classic with such brilliant performances, as you heard earlier um, from Henry Fonda and Lee J. Cobb, especially. And definitely, I mean, I'm not saying the other actors aren't, but let's be honest, those are the two that I know of off the top of my head. Um, and then, you know, Brilliant cinematography, um, brilliant staging. Um, overall, it is an excellent production. Um, it is by it is of, of all the movie of all the older movies I've watched. This is like definitely up there, and it's within my top ten list of all time favorite movies in general. And this is this is pretty high up there. So, Twelve Angry Men for me is truly a masterpiece.
And I don't know if I could say the same for Jeff, but um, take it away, Jeff, with uh, your final thoughts. Uh, overall, I think this is this isn't just one of those movies that if you're a fan of film that you should watch. I just think it's one of those movies that you should just watch regardless because it's worth uh, it, it's worth revisiting for every generation because its themes and storytelling are timeless. And, and I think uh, for just the fact that uh, within this decade, it'll uh, the film will turn uh, it's what 70 years old. It's close. So yeah, it came out in 1957. So yeah. So if I do some, if I do some math here, if anyone remembers the old Futurama <laughs> meme, I'm afraid we'll have to use math. Gross. So 2021. No, wait, I, it's going to be at least 60. Do you know how I know it's going to be at least 63 years old? Because huh. my parents were born in 1957. Oh, okay. Uh, so I, I think it's just one of those movies that will that will always be remembered and celebrated because uh, there there's a lot of movies that just kind of fall to the wayside and just kind of get forgotten by time i agree and, and in some cases it's very unfortunate but sometimes that that just happens but certain movies need to be forever preserved and because sometimes uh, a movie comes along that just says so much with kind of on the surface, so little. And it takes, it takes just the right director, the right writer and the right actors to bring a story like this and execute it in such a flawless manner. Mm -hmm. And it, this is just one of those movies that I, I would probably call a perfect movie. I, I want to watch it a couple more times, but just based off of my first viewing, I, I feel pretty comfortable in saying that it's definitely one of the best films I've ever seen. Uh, whether it would actually crack my like top 20 or insert number here favorites. I don't know yet because I, I just saw it and I needed, I needed to stick with me a little longer before making that, uh, that determination. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big movie collector and I definitely want to add it to, to my collection because this is definitely a movie that, I, I will rewatch and I look forward to rewatching it and constantly and just just continue peeling back the layers because I, I think I think this is one of those movies that will just get better on rewatch because you'll always pick up on something new. And I think those are the best type of movies that you don't really notice something on the first viewing. And the more you watch it, the more you're kind of forced to continue pe peeling back the layers kind of how the characters do in, in this movie. Yeah. It, again, it's, it's a very timeless story there. It, it's, 
again, like I said, it's themes. I, I can't stop reiterating. It's themes are just themes that still resonate today. And um, it's it's definitely it definitely has a lot to say for a movie of its time. Um, and I believe it's stop me if I'm wrong. I don't know if it's still on the Criterion Collection, but I know it was at one point. So if you it is if anyone yeah. if anyone wants to add more to the Criterion Collection. Here, there you go there. Well, I think because um, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Do you know? Uh, do you remember when the civil rights move, movement started? Because I think that was at least it was like six. That did start. That did that. that like it did start in the fifties, like at least okay, the late fifties. So I'm I'm trying to late, yeah, early sixties. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to remember if this movie came out. Before or after the civil rights movement started? No, this movie came out before. Okay. And so... At least I like to think it did. I'm not too positive, but I know the early 60s were like the height of that. Absolutely. And well, even... I think it's even more commendable if it it came out out prior. Uh, You know, like just because... You know, because I think the civil rights movement in general was able... You know, it it opened opened up everyone's minds to just put away the prejudice Mm -hmm. and and um and i think any movie that comes out that uh, that predates that when it was more universally accepted to have that perspective i think is is uh very uh very commendable yeah i mean I think uh, something tells me that maybe someone should remake this because um, given the climate that we're in right now, a story like this could really, well, no, maybe you don't need to remake it, but like maybe by recommending this, we could hopefully get people to watch it and then they could really see just how much something, a movie like this means today, given the current climate that we're in and, the current climate right now is just, it is incredible. Like in terms of just, uh, it's very much, it's very much, you know, not like the civil rights movement. I mean, it is similar, but in many ways it is the complete kind of opposite um, of what it was back in the sixties. But, um, but yeah, a movie like this really says a lot especially in today's climate, I feel like. But You still there? Yes, I I was waiting for, <laughs> for you to say something. <laughs> Sorry, I thought you cut out for a sec. <laughs> uh but yeah, no, it's just um yeah, it's just this is this is a movie that really still resonates with today's climate. But yeah, that's just my thought on that part. But overall, Jeff, I think it, it's unanimous that you and I both think that this is a timeless classic and that its messages will forever like really just resonate with everyone. Too. Yeah, like the uh I think the the lessons this story teaches need to be uh need to be taught to uh to every new generation. Mm-hmm. Because it really says a lot about, you know, personal prejudices and humanity. And we could really use more of this right now, I feel like. So 
But yeah, so that's pretty much it, everybody. 12 Angry Men, timeless classic. Um, we definitely highly recommend it. And so, yeah, this is um, this is really kind of a... We started off kind of joking with good old Lee J. Cobb and what do you mean? And, and now here we are kind of just... I guess we're going to kind of end it kind of there on a little bit of a somber note. And you, you have anything to offer to maybe bring us back up or whatnot? Well, I kind of I think it's kind of interesting how this episode has gone. It's it kind of it kind of mirrors the characters in the movie, how everyone uh, enters that enters that room, you know, kind of gung ho, ready to ready to make their choice and just get on with the rest of their day. Mm-hmm. And and they kind of they ended on a on a more somber, quieter note. And and I think that's just that's kind of the power of this film is it sparks mature discussion in, in a way like like there's uh, you can definitely there's points where you can interject a little a little humor here and there. But mm-hmm. I, I think this is one of those movies where when you're, when you're looking to not have a divisive conversation, because uh, I think I think certain stories that are told today can be a little a, one-sided, a little too one-sided. Yeah, and, I, I, I would agree with that. And how you, uh, but with a story like this, you're able to get all perspectives, and some of them are just flat out wrong mm-hmm. but you at least have the discussion and i think that's i think that kind of discussion is what's really needed in something like today and um one can only hope that we can have that kind of discussion and it's not that that discussion doesn't exist it's just people you, need to be willing to have that discussion it, exactly it's it it takes two mm-hmm it takes two, baby. It takes two. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I just had to do that. Um, but, but yeah, everybody, um, this was a very uh, interesting topic to handle today. So we appreciate everyone for hanging in there. Um, we haven't been here for two hours, but it certainly feels that long, much like two and twelve angry men. But um, uh, we like to thank everyone for tuning in and listening today. Uh, be sure to follow us on our Instagram page at tnapcast. That's T N A A P C A S T. It's on Instagram, so be sure to follow us there. And um, I guess our final thought is our final. I guess my final thought is, you know, be open to have a good discussion or whatnot because a good discussion like that's presented in Twelve Angry Men is much needed, and you know it it could open the doors to being open, more open-minded or whatnot, I guess is the case. But um, so yes, that's going to be another episode of, or installment of two nerdskis in a podcast. So um, for all of us here, I'm Eric. I'm Jeff. And with, uh, with my final notes uh, that the ultimate thing that I, I take away from this movie is here's some, before you make a, final determination on someone or their their actions hear them out
and then make your decision from there. So I am, I'm Jeff, and I want to thank you guys for listening to two, two assholes with a couple of microphones that wanted to talk about the movies. So stay shiny, everybody. You have a wonderful rest of your day. Next level. Next level.